Hi everyone, this is the Shopstool Podcast, episode 10 of season 3. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you? Well, great. I'm a little colder this time around because I'm out in the workshop recording, so I did it's notice getting a the bit chilly. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit chilly over here. And uh, Brian, how's it going? Oh, I'm good. I'm tucked up nice and cozy in lockdown number 6, so yeah, all good in Melbourne. <laughs> Hopefully the last one, um, but uh, I don't know how confident people are anymore these days. <laughs> <laughs> no. And uh, my name is Robin. Welcome to the show, everyone. So tonight we are joined by Ross uh, Williamson from the northwest of Brisbane. So Ross has some amazing pieces on his Instagram page, and I'm really looking forward to going into some detail on some of them. So welcome to the show, mate. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm brilliant. Thanks, Robin. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. So what we... Well, I guess the best place to start is uh, give people a bit of an idea of what you do and how you got to where you are today. Like, so, so what choices you made in life, um, whether they're good or bad, <laughs> that got you to where you are now and, and, and doing what you're doing. Yeah, gotcha. I made a lot of choices. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I've, I've listened to your podcast a couple of times, oh, heaps of times basically all of them. Um, and I'm, my story runs parallels with a lot of guys that, that have been on the podcast before. Um, didn't, and didn't start out as a woodworker by any means. I was, uh, in high school, I was a, a, a high performer, high performer. Um, <laughs> no, everyone listening, you didn't see the air quotes there. Oh yeah. Air quotes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was always, you know, directed towards uni straight out. I wanted to be an engineer. I love cars. I wanted to build cars. Um, and my teachers all directed me towards uni, and that was where I was going to go. There was, I love making furniture. I love woodwork. Um, but I wasn't particularly good at it in school, and I don't think I had the best teachers, to be honest, so that probably didn't help. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, I went to uni. I left school quite young. I was I was uh, 17 when I left uni. I left school, so I um, I had a year off, and I went and worked in a mine as a maintenance engineer's TA for a for a year. And um, yeah, by the time I got to uni, I was a bit already sort of angry at the world and and grumbling. <laughs> and um, one of, our, one of our first assessments was to take a Victor lawnmower to pieces and put it back together again. And this was a group assessment. There was eight lawnmowers and one of them went back together properly and started and that was our group. And then the assessment was actually, what did you learn in this piece? And I just went, I've spent the year taking dual power scrapers to pieces and putting them back together, mate. I learned nothing. I learned that a lot of mechanical engineers don't know how a small motor works. Yeah, and I failed that exam. Um, and then it was just sort of downhill from there to be honest I ended up <laughs> liking the pub a lot more than I liked the degree and uh, yeah. after, after two years I, I realised pretty quickly that I was going to spend my life behind an Excel sheet and I didn't really want to do that um, so I, I ran away pretty much I ran to Europe um, to England for two years I was working on a farm over there Travelling, went in and out of Europe. Um, I had a pretty sweet gig over there, actually. We had, we had a family friend who had had a stroke and um, he just he needed a bit of help in the, in the really tough times. 
like during during the year of, of farming. Um, Where, so whereabouts would, in Europe was this? In England, sorry. Um, oh, okay. So we're right, gotcha. in the Midlands in England, and uh, I'd work on the farm for like six to eight weeks. He'd pay me in cash, and I'd go and backpack around Europe. Awesome. Um, I'd literally run out of cash, and I'd call him up from the train station and say, hey, I'm in Saarbrook, <laughs> and I need a train ticket. And he'd <laughs> send me a train ticket and he'd come and pick me up from the train station the next day. Like, it was Jeez. a very good situation for, a, at that stage, 20-year-old. Um, eventually I got called home by the family. Um, yeah, mum basically booked my flight and said, you're on this one, you're coming home. <laughs> Which, as it is. Um, it was good, though. It brought me back to Sydney and then... I thought to myself, well, I knew that I needed to get a degree in something because I'd always been told that. Uh, so I ended up doing a Bachelor of Business, majored in marketing. Uh, again, didn't want to spend my life behind a screen. Um, I, it's funny that you've gone from I don't want to be behind a screen to I'm going to do <laughs> a marketing degree, which is yeah, <laughs> that's not where I thought your story was going to go. No, I, I always knew that I wanted to run my own business eventually. Um, the marketing degree was something that I didn't know how to run as a, as a businessman. Like I, mm. I didn't know that part. So I mm. thought that if I got the marketing degree, then it would at least give me that. Uh, at that time, I... I managed to talk myself into a role in a marketing department as a junior graphic designer for a hospitality company. So they trained me up as a graphic designer uh, while I was studying. Um, I think after three years, I left and started my own design studio. So I had a design studio called Heaps Creative and we uh, got contracts with a couple of hospitality clients down in Sydney and we're doing branding and marketing for hotels and pubs and uh and probably about two years into that I met my now fiance uh Kate um and she worked out pretty quickly that I was killing myself doing this and and for no <laughs> real reason like I was still living in eastern suburbs of Sydney at the time paying nearly $700 a week rent for a tiny apartment and I was yes it was Sydney at that time I was never going to be able to afford an apartment and build the business. Um, and Kate had worked out that I'd been going up to my brother's place in the Hunter Valley on the weekends and building furniture. <laughs> um, he had like just this pile of old ironbark railings that were all covered in black tar and just shit. Um, and I had picked out a couple of these things that looked half decent, got a an old electric hand plane and just scraped all of this black. Like, and it, it was thick. It was like five mil on. What, what were um, they from, do you know, originally? Uh, they were from old um, fences from the horse studs up in the Hunter Valley. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I made a dining table in my brother's dairy out of this stuff, and it was, yeah, a relatively nice dining table. It was pretty simple. Um, steel, steel framed legs and that sort of pretty standard style. Uh, anyway, Kate saw it. She's like, why don't you do this? Because you clearly actually <laughs> want to do this instead of doing the other thing that 
just makes you into an angry bear. Um, and yeah, she's Kate's got a pretty good head on her shoulders. She knows exactly what you know. She knew what I needed to do. Um, uh, at the time, she had a pretty good job working with BHP, and um, she just went, "Look, I'll you know I'll support us both until you can you know retrain and do this properly. So if you want to do it, by all means, this is the this is the time to to do it." She's got yourself a winner there. Hey? <laughs> oh, mate, Kate is outstanding. She is literally, yeah, That's I wouldn't awesome. know where sure I was it, was, there a, was there an ultimatum to fill the house with lots of good furniture? <laughs> well, that was another thing. We'd, like, we'd, we'd just moved in together and we, were, we literally moved in with two outdoor camping chairs and, a, and an old iMac and that was it. Oh, like, it was a whole house full of that. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was... That was the start, basically. That was mm. the seed. And then um, my mum, I'd, I'd just moved up to the Hunter Valley after that and was kicking around doing some odd jobs, building stables and things. Um, and, like, had started collecting a bit of tool, uh, like a couple of tools in um, a shed on, my, on Kate's parents' property. Uh, and then for my birthday, mum bought me... Uh, a week-long course with Roy Shack up here at the Brisbane School of Fine Woodworking. And um, I'd never made a piece of furniture to the tolerances that Roy allowed me to make a piece of furniture to. It was only a week long, but it was properly eye-opening to the tolerances that he worked to and to be able to work to that tolerance as well. To be able to produce a piece that is properly exhibition quality it was a fairly simple piece. That was just his hall table, hall table course, but it was just eye-opening for me. And I came back with, you know, reinvigorated and I wanted to make everything. And then I got into my own workshop with none of the tools, really. Yeah. And, it, you know, I could still work to that level, but I just didn't have any of the tools. And I just, um, mm. yeah, where do you start when you're, when you're starting from base level and That's you've got right. nothing in the workshop? I had... Mm. I started off with a, you know, probably more than, more than most people do. I had a, um, a $1,500 Harvey table saw, some rubbish chisels and, uh, yeah, not much else. The old electric hand plane that had already just about given up the ghost after tackling five <laughs> tonnes of tar. Um, and I spent the next two years just locked in that shed, basically, um, just making yeah. furniture and, and just failing fast. Um, right. I took on, you know, the, the, the housework. I became a bit of a house husband, to be honest. Um, mm. And then, yeah, after two years, Kate was like, you should, you've, you've actually got to start making money at this, mate. Um, <laughs> were, you, were, you not, were you taking on any work just for like anyone around the community or, or your friends or anything? Were you, were no. you doing anything for anyone else or just purely self-discovery? Purely self-discovery at that point. I wasn't to the, I'm uh, yeah, fairly shy when it comes to getting myself out there, to be honest. Um, yeah. I failed fast. And in the workshop when I didn't have the pressures for, of clients or, you know, even friends, making things for them, you can fail fast. You can, you, mm. can, you can completely screw something up and then just, it doesn't matter. Yeah. 
which is a luxury that I had. Um, Did you, sorry, I imagine, I remember, I still make failures all the time, but it's, it's such a good way to learn when you really cock a piece up and, and you go, right, this is rubbish. What can I do to it to try and fix it? Like, let's, let's just cut the thing in half and play with an idea of how I might, might fix it. And yeah. did, you, did you do anything like that where you really could learn yourself some, some kind of life-saving tricks that you might not ever use again, but there's always that thing in the back of your head where you're like, I know I could save it if I had to. Yeah, well, that, the, the dining table that I made, the first one, when I screwed it all together, I put the steel like end frames. It had square frames on each end. And when I bolted it all together, I didn't allow for expansion across the, across the dining table, yeah. so it ended up with a split down the middle of it. Yeah. And it stayed in the house for like for that for ages. Like, <laughs> I don't know, two or three. And every time I came in the house, you. I, yeah, <laughs> taunting. And I just left it there for a while as well. I was like, don't make such a stupid mistake again. Um, <laughs> and it, it stayed there for like three years. And after three years, I I had a bit of a lull. I had like nothing particularly on, and I just went into the house one day and dragged this table down, table down to the workshop and cut it in half. Yeah. And I literally cut it in half. Um, yeah, and then separated the gap and made a completely new table out of it um, yeah, yeah nice. that was a that was a good lesson that one yes everyone has had something split on them like that mm, yeah i haven't had any more since that one thankfully i've uh, <laughs> i've learnt to uh to be a bit more considerate of expansion and contraction um yeah. talking about your your clients well your potential clients which i think you're going to get to I'm really interested to hear how you first started getting that paid work. Yep. Um, the first piece, the first paid piece I did was for a friend. Um, so she had seen a little table I made. I made a, a weird little three-way joint, which sort of hammers together. It only goes together one particular way. Uh, and she saw a picture of it on Instagram and she messaged me straight away and she just said, oh, I want two of those. And I was like, okay. She's like, I want it in American Oak. I was like, all right, <laughs> where am I, I going to get American Oak from? This will be fun. So that was my first trip down to a, a timber supplier to go and, you know, I bought like 10 metres and it was a big purchase for me at the time, 10 metres of American Oak. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was my first trip down to Sydney. Like, I drove from the Hunter Valley down to Sydney to pick up this funny thing. <laughs> I, made, I made no profit whatsoever on this case. Um, but, you know, that was, that was just the very start of it. And I'd grown up in the workshop. My father was a, a farmer and an agricultural engineer. And I'd grown up around metal and, and metalworking. So I knew how to order metal. I knew right. nothing about ordering timber. I was like, what, yeah. what do I even buy? I, I don't know, some 50 by 50 RHS? <laughs> what <Yeah>. do you... <laughs> and as a, like, you just have to go through it. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I went down to Sydney, picked up that piece of timber. And, you know, that's... It's something that... Not a great... Deal. Like, if you're, a self, if you're a self-learner, if you're self-taught, how are you supposed to learn that other than going to do it? You know, it's just experience. And, you know, now... Now we buy it by the cube, and uh, I have a brilliant relationship with Jim at Britain's Timbers, and he, I just call him up and say, hey, Jim, I need, you know, I, I buy relatively small packs of timber. Um, 
And I'll call him up and say, I need some American oak. You know what I want. Give me a call or send me a list of things that you might think I want. And within five minutes, he sent me an email of what I want. And usually within a day, it's delivered. That's a way better system than what I have worked out. <laughs> um, and and from, then after that, from that, that paid or that client, yep. did it grow exponentially or was it quite a, was that just one off and then it, and then it was a lull again? It was a, it was a one off and then a lull. It was a real slow burn to start off with. Um, Sorry, Ross, in terms of how, how long ago was this? Like f- uh, five four, years? Four, five years ago, yeah. So yeah. I think just that would have been not too long before I'd met you at mm-hmm. uh, that workshop in Sydney. Yep. Um, so yeah, that was probably five years ago. And then it was a real slow burn after that. Um, there'd be bits and pieces. Um, I sold a couple of pieces to family members and things like that. Um, it wasn't really until Kate pushed me to enter an exhibition and, um, you know, she... She was like, look, you've, you've just got to get out there. You've, you've, you've failed fast in the workshop. You've got to get out there and fail fast selling things because, mm. you know, as much as she wants me to do this for the love of it, she doesn't want me to do it just for the love of it. At some stage, mm. this needs to pay for, you know, life. Um, so I designed a piece for the Wuther Prize up in Mullaney, um, yep. a piece called Coolwa. Uh, and that came home third place behind Robert Howard, who is just a genius at carving, um, and another master carver. So as my first exhibition piece, I came third behind two master carvers in a a sculptural piece, you know, and that gave me a bit of confidence to move forward and and actually produce things. Um, And then I went and did... Uh, Roy Shack's month-long course, the Cabinet on Stand course. Um, and that was, again, a huge eye-opener to be able to produce that piece of furniture with a, you know, the piston-fit drawer and the dovetails in the back of it that are, you know, 7 mil, seven mil across at, the, at yeah. the widest part. And, yeah, it just gave me another boost of confidence that I could actually go out there and, and make exhibition-quality furniture and finish it like that. Uh, and then probably handcrafted was the next step. Uh, got a few sales through handcrafted. Um, and then we haven't the achieved, we've never spoken about handcrafted on the show. I was just so about maybe, to say, what is that? Maybe because yeah, Joey and um, and Robin probably don't know about it. So maybe just explain the basics oh, okay. of what handcrafted is. Yeah, right. So uh, handcrafted's uh, an online collection of makers in Australia. Um, by Fred, who's he's a great bloke, um, and it, it definitely has its place in the marketplace. Uh, if, Fred, if Fred is listening, he does owe us a beer for this uh, free plug, by the way. <laughs> he most certainly does. Yeah. Um, you know, and people can go onto that website and it, they'll give a brief and their, um, what their budget is and, and it'll right. send it out to a couple of makers and then the makers yeah. can sort of bid on it. It's like... Um, yeah it's a yeah. good website it, it is cool. a really yeah. really good like it's probably one of the only things that I had heard of in the Australian market at that time there were a couple of others that came along and tried it and failed but his has sort of stayed the course yeah. and the, the commissions that they charge makers are 
infinitely smaller than retailers. Right, so awesome. It yeah. sort of gives you a chance to pool your work with other makers so that if people come on and they don't know a single furniture maker, they can just log on to this website and see an array of Aussie yeah. makers. Yeah. yeah. That's that's handcrafted. Yeah. That's Which, it, yeah, it's... The commission thing's great, and especially with retail. We've tried retail a couple of times. We tried going with interior designers, and mm. uh, yeah, the, commissions, the commissions are just so big, you know, and mm-hmm. they, they expect you to do everything at the same time. You know, I'm fine paying commission if they're going to do they're, they're going to pay for photography and things like that and actually do the marketing, but they're mm. wanting me to do all the marketing at the same time. I'm like, what are you getting a commission for apart from your rent? Mm. <laughs> yeah, you, they're just yeah. putting it up in their store. Yeah. With potential eyes to see. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that, then I guess our website gets some pretty good traffic. And, um, you know, the, as our body of work has grown and our... Uh, I know you guys don't like Instagram all that much, but a lot of our work has come from Instagram. Oh, we love... Don't get me wrong, we love Instagram. <laughs> we, just get, we just get bugger all work through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it allows us to connect everybody, so it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the, the best thing that it's allowed people to do is just connect. Um, mm-hmm. Kate and I had a... <laughs> um, we went up to Noosa and did a cruise, like a day cruise sort of thing with these all these interior designers. And um, as sort of a, you know, a networking gig, there were interior designers and there were furniture importers on this thing. And that was, the, it was me and then a boat full of women. And like, <laughs> uh, it was horrendous. It was the worst <laughs> afternoon. Um, uh, but geez. like the culture that these furniture importers had compared to us. And I, I'd been yeah. used to the, you know, I've asked Brian, I've met Brian a handful of times and I've asked him to do stupid things for me just because I know him as a maker and he's done them. You're like, mm. And I owe him so many beers. It's not funny. Um, but there's just that community with the makers in Australia. Uh, and these furniture importers, we were talking to them, and you're like, oh, do you find it? You know, how's the community? How's the, how's the feeling? Like, oh, no, we, that's it's very backstabby. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I think all just about because undercutting each other and, and stealing yeah, business, exactly. I imagine. Yeah, whereas most of the makers in Australia just, you know, we just want other people to succeed. And I think yeah. that's, you know, the overriding fact of, of who we are. I think we recognise that the stronger the craft scene is, the more likely we are to actually be able to create sustainable business. Yeah, exactly. And as well, like, making sure that everybody prices appropriately and nobody is sort of... Cutting, undercutting everybody else just to get a foothold because yeah. the sustainability of that is not, yeah, it's, it's not the way to support everybody. Yeah, totally. There's a, a wood shop just up the road from me, and the owner of that shop is very much when you talk to him about um, pricing your work, he's very, very intense about it mm-hmm. to the point that one of the, the, local guys here Scott Turner from Formy Industrious we've, we've had him on the show he was talking to him about this this uh, wood shop owner buying something off Scott 
And Scott said, this is what I'm going to charge you. And he said, that's not what you're going to charge me. Try again because that's way too low. You need to, you need to pump those prices up because your work is worth something. Don't, mm-hmm. un, don't undersell yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I hear that all the time as well. Um, I, I, when it comes to pricing, I do think there's a point where if, if you're happy with the price and you're making money, what you want to make from it, then that's the price. And prices are going to vary from place to place. Like if you live in Sydney, I imagine Mm -hmm. um, your rent is a lot more. And so you need to cross a certain threshold. And so you're probably going to charge more because that's what you uh, need to earn. Um, And so there is going to be price fluctuations. uh, But I think people generally probably... I would like to hope people are buying from makers who are closer to them rather than trying to ship stuff all around the place. But mm. these days it's tough to, to have that happen. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm quite surprised about how much. I Up until this year, I didn't really sell all that much locally to Brisbane, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, most of my stuff went to either Sydney or Melbourne. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, COVID's changed that. I've had a lot yeah. more, like, yeah, work in the last year has just been ridiculous. I've got, yeah. you know, I'm looking around me now, I've got nine chairs, a dining table, a king bed, four bedsides, and, a, you know, the rest of the whiteboard's full of stuff as well. And that's just in the last, yeah, couple of months. And just quickly, are you by yourself? Have you got some uh, help in the workshop? I've got an intern at the moment, uh, Gemma. Okay. She's brilliant. Um yeah, I'm, I'm on that real... I want this to be a business that can support our family. Um, yeah. You can't do that as a single maker. I, I, no. You know, it's very, very hard to do it. Um, and having Gemma in... She's in, like, 10 or 15 hours a week at the moment. Um, and, you know, she's not, she's not a professional by any means, but she wants to learn. Um, and she's just doing the sanding and, you know and those bits and pieces in between at the moment. And it just offers me up so much more time so I can Mm -hmm. get to clients and and get to the fine tuning pieces that I need to do. Yeah. It's been a really great step for us. Um, Cause I was, it's a massive leap. It's a massive leap getting someone in the workshop because you have all this uncertainty about just the, um, pure taking up space like do i actually have space to put another workbench in somewhere and what happens when they're using the machine and i want to use the machine and (laughs) all these like really practical things but as soon as you do it as soon as you have someone in there you're like okay why didn't i do this two years ago because yeah yeah it's it's, like you say as soon as you have someone in there who's even if they're just sweeping the floor that's something you don't have to do and you can sit and draw that designed for another 10 minutes rather than sweep up the floor yeah yeah it, it's uh it's been a, a pretty big eye opener for her isn't it she's only been here for uh, probably six weeks now six mm-hmm. or eight weeks but the first couple of weeks were were a bit hard for me because i i've been in the shed by myself for the last five years so you know yeah. I, I was pretty <laughs> used to the shed being mine and mm. mine alone yeah um kate comes in and and helps me when um you know, when I've got things that need to get out the door quickly just before delivery, Kate's usually the poor one that has to, you know, wake up at four o'clock in the morning with me and get the final <laughs> buff done before the delivery van turns up. Um, yeah, she's the she's usually the whip cracker that makes sure that deliveries happen. Um, you are. 
But apart from that, it's just been me. So getting used to someone else in the workshop did take a couple of weeks to, um, you know, to, to work out and manage no, even tools. You know, I've, I've got my own tool set and yep. they're all mine. And then you've got someone else in and you're trying, to, you're trying to show people how to use them. But at the same time, you're like, oh, I've got to do something that I, I, need, that, I need that tool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's taken a couple of weeks, but, yeah, it's, it's starting to snowball now. Just going back to the, what you said about a lot of your pieces were going to Melbourne and Sydney, do you think that's a cultural thing or do you think it's just they have the numbers of people, which so it's just this, by virtue of that fact, you're going to make more sales there? Uh, a, a bit of both, I think. I, I'd probably hazard a guess without... I'm not a I'm not a Brisbane local, so I don't want to you know defame any Brisbaneites. But um, <laughs> here it goes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll give it a crack. Um, I've spoken to a couple of other people in, in retail industries, in retail outlets in the city, and they have said that their thoughts are that the influx of people coming from Sydney and Melbourne has sort of changed the the idea that a lot of Brisbane people have around the stuff that they've got in their homes. You know, they didn't mm. used to have that keeping up with the Joneses sort of mentality. They didn't mm. care what their neighbour had. Whereas now they've got, you know, real estate in Brisbane's still extremely attractive to a lot of people because it is, yeah, great. Kate and I have just bought five acres 30 minutes from the CBD, 35 Jeez. minutes from the airport, uh, I've got a workshop here. It's Valhalla for me. Um, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot of people moving up from Sydney and Brisbane and just bringing that mentality with them. Mm. And then the people in Brisbane are, are realising that that's a thing that they can do too and they can go and search out for better furniture and then, yeah, the houses are worth more now so they can actually, you know, borrow more money and... Do you, think, things. do you think there was an element or is was an element of of keeping up with the Joneses or more so that hey we didn't even consider that we could get these things one made in Australia and mm. two that look better and three that are better well made than what I- IKEA is selling yeah hopefully it's a mix of all of that to be honest yeah, um, yeah. you know I, a lot of the clients that I've got in the last uh, six months Mainly due in, co- in mainly due to COVID, and not being able to import furniture that they've previously been able to import. Yeah, they've gone looking and found us, and being like, oh, I didn't even realise you guys were here. I was like, Well, we are now. You know we are, yeah. so you can keep buying from us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, probably a mix of all of that. Mm. I think it's. I think it's definitely become more sophisticated up that way. Like when you look at the types of architecture offices. That yeah. are now established in Brisbane. That previously, if if somebody moved from Melbourne to Sydney and they wanted a residence design, they would look to a Melbourne or Sydney architect. Whereas now they find local architects of the same caliber. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it's definitely become a lot more refined up that way. Uh, just today, I sold my uh, crib that I made, or coastal yeah. crib oh, yeah. thing that yep. I made for my first child, and I had it up online on Facebook Marketplace for $400. Now, for me, that was that is worth at least $1,000, but 
that's because it's got sentimental value and because it's not a commission piece it's, it's a really hard ask to, yep. to ask for that type of money so I had it up on on Facebook marketplace for months not a single but I eventually just gave up and forgot about it someone contacts me I love it it's exactly what I want first child coming in December can I come have a look perfect they come over where are they from Victoria <laughs> and that's why I ask about the cultural thing. They do people in Sydney and, and, and Victoria or Sydney and Melbourne see the value in that. Whereas the rest of us, you know, in the rest of the world, I'm up north in, in Townsville. The rest of us are either looking for a bargain or it's just a piece of furniture. I mean, why would you spend that type of money on just a piece of furniture when I can get it from Super A Mart for half the price? Mm. Yeah. It seems to be. It seems to me, looking at it from this side of the ditch, that it, it may be more of a generational thing. Where if there has been a, a longer term, say, furniture culture in places like Melbourne, you have more generations who are used to seeing it, and it's just slowly creeping its way north as as people migrate. You know. Interesting. Interesting. But I was pretty sad to see my. That, that crib go for that price yeah well <laughs> I put so many hours into that thing and that's you've got to learn I mean maybe this is a good um, question for Ross like you got to learn to um, let go of every piece you make especially when someone's paying good money for it like do you mm. how invested do you get into your pieces is it difficult to say goodbye because uh, I don't some... care at all anymore yeah, <laughs> I just want mate. the money <laughs> To some of them, I can't wait to get them out of my door, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to see them again. Um, yep. Bits and pieces. For my commission pieces, probably not. Um, you know, my commission pieces, are they're all bespoke for the client. Um, and we are fairly uh, close contact with the clients beforehand. So, you know, those pieces, I don't see them as my pieces, to be honest. Mm. They're, yeah. they're for the client. Um, yep. They're the client's piece. My exhibition pieces, on the other hand, I haven't sold a single one and I don't particularly want to. If they do right. go into exhibition, they get a stupid price put on them. So, you know, if they do sell, it doesn't hurt so right. much. But yeah. um, at the end of the day, it probably comes home. Um, yeah, I know I've, we don't have two outdoor chairs and, a, and an old iMac anymore. There's a yeah. house full of, a house full of furniture up there, um, whether it yeah. be concept chairs or... Yeah, exhibition pieces. Um, it's all. So, there. I'm intrigued. You've mentioned chairs a couple of times, and I've seen on your Instagram you've got some pretty cool chair designs in the works. Um, for a one man band, up until fairly recently, how the hell are you designing and making <laughs> chairs and making more than a dollar on them? Because um, chairs, especially the development of a one, a comfortable, good-looking chair that yeah. you can actually produce in a way that is, you know, time-efficient. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I just... I, whenever I see chairs, I'm just like, oh, my God, do you really want to pay for a custom chair? Because, <laughs> you know, it's going to cost you the cost of a dining suite. Yeah. Um, I love process design, I think. Yeah. More than design itself, I probably love process design. I love getting down into the, the problem solving and the nitty gritty of how can I make this piece? And then once I've made that piece, 
how can I make another one? And how can mm-hmm. I make the second one, you know, five times faster than I've made the first one? Yeah, yeah. And then how can I make 30 of them mm-hmm. and reduce those processes as much as possible, leave the quality exactly the same, but yeah. how can I refine that process down and down and down and down until that point, you know, until we reach that point where we can make chairs at a reasonable price. I say reasonable price. My furniture's expensive. I'm not... Yeah. I won't shy away from that. Um, yeah. It is what it is. Most of our clients have... Uh, yeah. The yeah, means to... The means <laughs> yeah. to, to buy our furniture. Yeah. Um, but that being said, you know, our... Um, the Wadella chair, the... You know, the... I think that's, that's yeah. probably on the, on the Instagram post, yeah. page the most. Uh, it comes in at just under $1,000. Yep. So it's, you know, as far as a big dining chair goes, it's pretty reasonable. That's about right, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's, that pretty much is what I say to clients. Uh, typically, if whenever, whenever someone says, "Do you want? I want a custom chair," I, I'm like, "Well, you're pretty much starting at a thousand dollars. If if you if you think about each chair as a grand, then yeah. I, I'll I'll start doing some drawings for you. But I mean, if if you're thinking half that, then unless you want to order twenty, then um, you know I, I won't even think about drawing it. Yeah, and then and then it's just about you know refining those processes down. And I just look at each piece as just components, you know. Mm. You, you break them down at the end of the day, you're just making, you know, the chairs are yeah. uh, three, Today's. four, eight, ten. There are 11 components yeah. and a seat. Just make just those 11 components as fast as Start at number you can. one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I love making chairs. I think they're the... Uh, I haven't made one that I'm... I love our Wadella chair, but I, there's there's aspects of it that don't uh, that don't excite me all that much. Um, I just love having to design that three dimensional piece that you you have that envelops you. You, you know, you're touching mm. all surfaces of it, mm. rather than a desk or a table or something that you only you sort of touch one surface. You sit mm. in a chair and it sort of wraps around you, and you have to design for all of those pieces and to be able to walk around at 360 degrees and, you know, see every angle. And are you designing something like a chair on pen and paper or some digital means? Uh, I design um, Sketchpad. I've got yep. tons and tons and tons of Sketchpads just full of rubbish. Uh, and then eventually there'll be one that sort of gets developed a little bit further. And then once I've got an idea that I really like, it goes to digital. Okay. So I design on Fusion 360, and then from there it goes to the workshop. Yeah. And there are bits and pieces that you just can't develop on digital. Mm. You know, it, it's um, you don't get those ergonomics in digital. You have to sit in it and feel it. So you sort of get the idea, go to a concept, make the concept in the workshop, which is probably apply, you know, thrown together in a day with screws sticking out of everywhere. Yeah. and yeah. Um, just refine those ergonomics to that to the right point and then go from there. Talking about your pieces, there is a 
it's not really a round table, but it's as close to a round table as you could get, the Les Coffee table. <laughs> Does He's that gone off to find one. <laughs> <laughs> Does that coffee table, if you rotate the top like a steering wheel, does yep. it twist? No. Then you need to teach me that dark art of how to do that. Because do you know what's funny? So I made a coffee. Ta- um, I made a dining table, round table with yep. legs like that. Not too long ago, there was too much spin. Joey's had the same story. It was only a couple of weeks ago. Mike from Modern Builds, one of the one of the oh, yeah. guys, yeah. put out a, a like a. a, a, a a post on Instagram to say help you know what's wrong, gone wrong with my it's table wobbly. <laughs> how how have you managed to not get surely on that because that's a very light leg assembly there's not a lot of chunk in that how is that not rotating on those joins which uh, I, you'll have to you'll have to um, confirm for me which which design it is but is it the sort of guitar pick style coffee table yep, yep. yeah uh there's a bit of chunk in them. They're 30 by 30. Mm. There is a... There is a... It's a coffee table, is it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so okay. it's not very high. It's, it's only Yeah, so that's half of high. the problem. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's almost all of the problem solved is, is the length. Right. If yeah. you would... If in your mind, I don't know if you've made a bigger one, but if you were to make a dining table size... Oh, there'd be full uh, chunk, yeah. You would have to beef everything up quite a bit because it's going to move yeah Um, and I remember because my table I made you would lean on the top and the top would probably twist around from the legs probably four degrees or more yeah Um, and I would I would slowly twist the top and just watch the timber move I mean the timber is just bending and um you know, it's, you can't do much about it when the wood just decides it's, it's time to move, it's time to move. All it told me was my timbers were probably half the size they needed to be. Yeah. yeah but that, that's that's the trick about trying to make something look slender and you've got to get rid of all the corners and round everything and make it look smaller than it actually is. Yeah. Um, and it's all about trial and error of actually making it several times, I suppose. Yeah. And you've got to look at moments and, you know, the moment as it twists that you know the force that it's twisting around and then you you know there's that dark art of of applying chamfers to things to make things look lighter than they actually are you know you can have mm-hmm. a leg that's if you chamfer it right you can have a leg that's 90 mil at one at one edge and then mm. chamfers underneath so it looks 90 mil wide but it's it looks thin but at the mm. end of the day it's quite a thick piece it's too still beefy, yeah. yeah and can resist that moment um yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That Thanks, for Joey, for pointing that out, the high thing, because it's still one of those things that whenever I sit at that table in the evenings, we've just, my, me and my family have learned to live with it now, but it's always one of those, <laughs> what could I have done? How could I have fixed this? Is this worth taking back down to the workshop to try and solve? And every time I see someone else suffering it, there's a horrible part inside of me that I'm not proud of that goes, yes, yes, it's not just me. <laughs> I even told you guys what happened to my table. I, I saved the top. I took the top off it and the base went off the side of the deck and yeah. then it went into the fire. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we did. I think we talked about this around the same time that yeah. I, was, I was struggling with it. There's a, there's a, a, 
uh, YouTuber, John Peters, who does a lot of woodworking, and he's made a, a round coffee table. And the size of his legs, they were, they were tree trunks, and I thought, that's the, right. that's the only way you're going to get around it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't um, know. Ross, sorry, I was going to interject with another question. Yeah, um, man. Um, I, over the years, it's, it's not, nothing that I ever planned on, but a bread and butter kind of income for me is making um, like TV cabinets, wall units. Yep. It seems it seems like a really um, a niche thing that you don't seem to be able to get. Kitchen makers don't want to touch them, and general general cabinet makers don't really like to do them because generally they have to be painted. Um, is there? A, and so I do a lot of them, and that's my bread and butter. Um, yep. And it's a of, we can do them quickly, and we can make good money off them. Um, is there an item that you've come across that something that you are repeatedly making or is it at this stage are you still doing everything as one off um, we're, we're getting a run on round bedsides I don't know if you've seen them on the Instagram but the round the, the fully round bedside tables oh uh, yes yep yeah I, I've started to sell quite a few of those there's yeah. four of them it's like a hat box type, like an elongated hat box or mm. something. yeah 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 um, yeah, other than that, no, not really. There's no one, no one piece. Ideally, we would like to have our own product range, you know. Custom's great for learning and, uh, and building your skill set and things like that, but at the end of the day, your hourly rate goes out the window when you start hitting snags and, you know, there's... Yeah. I think you need 30 years of experience in the game to work out how custom stuff goes together without it costing you a fortune. Um, but you did no, a fair bit of you did a fair bit of commercial stuff as well, like the stools. Yeah, yeah you got big big runs of those. Yeah, big runs of the stools. We're we're starting to uh, appeal to interior designers and architects and, and get those bigger jobs, which I'm I'm more than happy to do. Um, yeah. You know that that's the sort of work that we're chasing. Um. Yeah, big runs of those stools going to pubs and things. I think the last set we set out was like 36 stools in a run, which was, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good number. Um, we'd like to do more of that stuff. Yeah, so you just, would prefer to have, say, let's say 10 good designs that you're constantly turning over and you just have like boxes full of jigs <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah, I, know, right. I, I know that sounds like nightmares to most people but um uh, as far as a business case is concerned i think yeah, that's that, that, yeah, yeah. that makes money <laughs> yeah exactly yeah at the end of the day i love making furniture i i want it to pay for my family i don't want it to just be a hobby yeah that you know i retire to i'll build cars when i retire <laughs> so I would like to get you to think about going back to because that your your um, story of how you coming you, how you came up. Go yep. back to the decision where you made, or, or, or where you made the decision to start doing this full time. Would you have done it a bit earlier, or would you have would you have approached it differently? Time again, twenty twenty hindsight. Uh, yeah, yeah, mate. Um, to be honest. I should never have been at uni when I was. Mm. I was ill-prepared. I, you know, I hadn't been prepared by the school or by the teachers or, you know, by most people. Um, 
time again, if I knew what I know now, I probably would have left school, gone and done a trade, mm. whether that be carpentry or whatever, um, just mm. done a trade and then pissed off to Europe for a couple of months, yeah. a couple of years, and then eventually gone to the uni if I wanted to still do uni, you know, after I'd got out of my system, whatever needed to get out of my system. I don't know that I would have ended up making furniture in that track, though. So, mm. yeah. And, and that's why... Everything I, happens for a reason. That's why yeah. I ask, because furniture making, to me anyway, it's not, as, it's not the same as, as, as becoming a world-famous band, because we all know that the chances of that working out are slim to none. But in terms of a, getting a degree in marketing and getting a job your chances of quote-unquote succeeding are much higher than being a woodworker. So if you, were, if you were to do your time over, do you feel like you could have improved your odds, so to speak? Or do you think for anyone else coming up on this, on this path, it, you've just got to throw yourself at it and hope for the best? That, that all, that's all there really is. You can have a plan B, but you've just got to throw yourself at it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a different world that we grew up in now. I think yeah. we, you know, you can change what you want to do halfway, you know, halfway through your twenties, halfway through your thirties. Mm. Oh, mm. when I first went to uni, I was at a guy. I was with a guy there who'd been a musician for most of his life, and he wanted to be an engineer. And he was mm. one of the best students there. Like, he was going to be a fifty-year-old graduate engineer, but he did it. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I honestly don't know how to to, to <laughs> properly answer that one for you, Robin. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's because we're exposed to so, and and maybe this is us living in our own little bubble, but because we're exposed to so many people doing what we do, it feels like the number of people doing this is just getting more and more and more and more and more. And at some point, yep. the supply is going to overtake the demand, and that's why I always wonder. Yeah. Or people coming up today, myself included, because I, I don't do this full time yet. I'd love yeah. to, but is it a is it a wise move to be dropping a a, a, a steady nine to five job for something like this, or is the risk well, just getting higher and higher? <laughs> that's yeah, a well, question. That's a question, isn't it, <laughs> mate? Robin, you're I'll, making me question my life choices right now. <laughs> can you please stop that? I um, I just want to drop in here and. and because earlier Ross was talking about uh, was is it Kate your wife? Yep. Um, and how she said, you know, that um, you go and do this. I'll take care of the bills for a, a while, and you get yourself on your feet. Yeah, fair enough. And I, and essentially that happened with me as well. Um, and, whereas, and me. So mm. and I, I think what you have to do if you're really on the path and you and you and it doesn't have to be woodwork. This applies to anything. But if you really want to go at it, you know, you only get one life and you only get one chance at being the age you are now. And so you need to have some financial backing, whether it's a partner. In my case, it was a, um, a payout from my insurance company because I got cancer. Um, you know, it's like there's a bunch of roads we were walking down, but I think it's... I think to constantly have a, a plan B, like you said, Robin, is maybe not such a good idea. I think sometimes you need to be forced down or force mm. yourself into a road where you don't have a backstop and there's actually there's no U-turn 
it's just forward yeah. and make it make it work figure it out give you like give yourself like if you can work it out so you say right i've got a year to start making some money from this endeavor whatever it is um and if i can make some money from it in a year then then we reassess from that, that point and say can we make more money is it viable um i think that's the way forward if you're going for a passion project i think you almost have to f- you almost have to force yourself into the position to be successful. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. See, when you talk about uh, putting yourself out there and like you struggled with the idea of talk, which I think a lot of Australian makers, not to have a dig at Americans, but Americans <laughs> are much better at talking about themselves in a mm-hmm. positive light. I think uh, Australians, it might be a, sort of a post colonial thing about. Mm-hmm just the work's supposed to speak for itself and then let other people talk about it um can you talk through your experience of coming down to wood dust and doing the crit with um laura mccosker and adam markowitz and how that was yeah there was somebody else as well who was the third uh nick rennie nick rennie that's right yeah yeah um yeah that was brilliant i the one thing that I, I had struggled with and, and blocking myself away in a workshop was feedback. You know, I'd, I'd make something and it'd be okay. And I'd think, oh, yeah, it's okay, but it's pretty shit. And then, you know, no one would see it apart from Kate and she would tell me it was great, but she's my wife, so she has to tell me it's great. Um, <laughs> that feedback part is is huge. And then the only sort of the only sort of avenue you've got as a young maker or designer for feedback is competitions but you know you pay a $300 admin fee to enter you send your designs off you get an email three months back saying you haven't been selected thanks for your $300 it's, and, and it's usually being judged by again no offense to the interior designers listening mm-hmm. but it's being judged on very different criteria than if you're presenting your work to experienced makers who understand craft how things are made mm. yeah it's it's yeah. a totally different field but you hopped on a plane with your yeah. chair and came down to melbourne and presented yeah. in front of what 30 people 40 people yeah exactly i, I spent the day so i uh, got yeah. an early flight from brisbane down to melbourne Jeez. crated up the chair flew it down oversized um got in a taxi came to the event came to wood dust unpacked it made my speech you know, and that was a big thing for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not a public speaker by any means. I, I just don't do it. Um, but to be able to get out there and get in front of people like Adam Markowitz and uh, Laura McCusker and Nick Rennie, was, it was brilliant for me, you know, to be able to get that and to get positive feedback from those guys um, and then pack it all straight back up into a crate and chuck it <laughs> on a plane. And, you know, I was back in Brisbane by 6 o'clock that night. Mm. And how did their feedback... So that was, that was one of your chairs, wasn't it? The, yeah, that was the Wadella chair. Yep. Wadella. How did their feedback change, either the design of the chair or the way in which you make it now? Or did I, it? I, I didn't change it. Um, I left it as is. I had some... Oh, yeah. There was some feedback from... <laughs> Nick Rennie looked at it and went, that is undoubtedly Australian. <laughs> um, which was... You know, a, a nice thing to hear. Nick had some really good comments, actually. Um, uh, Laura McCusker chastised me for using American oak in that piece because it had uh, kangaroo leather, um, and then it was an American oak 
timber. Mm. Um, and she said, why don't you use Tasmanian oak? You know, this could have been a, a properly Australian piece. And I was like, well, to be honest, I had leftover American oak in the workshop. Which is <laughs> yeah. have, you done it in an, have you done it in Tassie Blackwood or something? Or is that my imagination? Uh, yeah, I've got two. Uh, yeah. I, I sent two down to Canberra in, in Tassie Blackwood in a, a beautiful yeah. blue cobalt. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. Felt. Uh, there's nine of them in the workshop at the moment in the same colour. Um, yeah, I I can see where Laura was coming from with that, and I and I agree. But yeah, it was in American oak because I had American oak spare. Yeah. Um, from that though, I you know I did delve into that design, and and there's a new chair on the on the sketch pad at the moment that's that's um, well further on from the sketch pad. It's in concept piece at the moment, but. Um, that's taken on cues from there and um, cues from Burn Chandley. I went down and did his uh, CT14 week-long course and, um, yeah, mate, that guy makes some, some beautiful chairs and just the ergonomics of them, you know, to be able to sit in a chair that actually that sits like Burns do, it... it just opens your eyes as to what you can do. I came home and just chopped a Wardella chair in half pretty much, you know, reduced the, sheet, <laughs> the seat size and, and you know, laid it back just that extra degree and a half and, and yeah. Being able to do that with Burn in his workshop was brilliant. No, that was probably mm. the... Probably gave me more ideas for feedback on the next chair rather than... Um, Rather than speaking to Adam and Adam and Laura and and Nick, but they they did their piece. Yeah, so stuff. Uh, it's very brave. Like I said, for people that haven't come through a sort of an arts degree where you're used to standing up in front of people and getting absolutely torn to shreds, it is a it is a very brave thing. They, they were very you know restrained. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think <laughs> I think the types of personalities of the three of them as well. Yeah, they understand how to give critical feedback. Yeah, so it's not yeah. just telling you that it's shit. It's <laughs> say, did you think about doing it this way? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. you'll go, yeah, I did think about it doing it that way, but I chose to go in this direction. And they're like, oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a different thing, but it is still to get up in front of a crowd of people is, is a hard thing when most makers will generally present something to a client and then tweak it just to that one client. They don't they don't hear group feedback. And like we always say, Instagram for all the positive things, like it is, it turns into a bit of an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Any negative feedback in it tends yeah. to be seen as sort of online bullying. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. no. Maybe maybe a bit of a bit of negative is good sometimes. You're allowed yeah. to have an opinion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For anyone who wants to give feedback on any of my pieces, by all means, just throw <laughs> yeah. it. Address them to Robin Lewis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, this is interesting. Come yeah. back around. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all, right. all right, I reckon we should leave it there for tonight. Um, so to everyone listening, uh, if you did enjoy the show, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. It really does help us out. Joey and Brian, always fun to hang out. And yeah. Ross, thanks so much for telling your story. It's, uh, no worries. Thanks, guys. It's been a really cool show. And um, I hope a lot of people listening 
have got got something out of it, um, especially about having a plan B. I'm so glad we touched on that at the end of the show because we've never <laughs> talked about that. No. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah, that was an awesome show. Thanks. Yeah, cheers, Ross. Cool. No worries, right, guys. All right, everyone. Take care, and we'll see you next time. See, see you guys. Ya.